What are some of the most important legal considerations when forming an Opportunity Zone fund? And what are some of the pros and cons of corporation, partnership, REIT, and synthetic fund structures? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Tax law was complicated enough before the Opportunity Zones program was introduced into law in late 2017, and it's obviously gotten a lot more complicated since then. Here to speak with us today about some Opportunity Zone legal tax issues is Jessica Malay, partner and chair of Duval and Stackenfeld's Tax Practice Group. Jessica specializes in tax, real estate, and Opportunity Zone law, and she joins us from her office in New York City. Jessica, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here. Great, great. So, uh, when did you first learn about the Opportunity Zone program, and what was your initial reaction to it? So, we first heard about the Opportunity Zone program in early 2018. Um, I will be honest; when tax reform was happening at the end of 2017, and we were all pouring over the the new provisions and the House report and the Senate report and conference bill and all of that, Opportunity Zones did not come across to me um, as sort of this hot new thing in tax reform that, that, that would really be turned into what it has turned into. We were focused on a lot of the big ticket, big ticket items that everybody else was focused on. And then it wasn't until early 2018 that we, we, we first started looking at it and getting calls about it. And once we looked at it in more depth, it was, it was kind of a, a, a no-brainer for us to, to really make the decision to move into the space. Duval and Stockenfeld is a, a real estate law firm here in New York City, uh, and given that the Opportunity Zone legislation is a, a, a geographically based program, no surprise that real estate was really the first wave of investments. And since real estate is really the primary focus of the firm, all of our clients, as soon as we told them about it, I remember sending out our first, we called it a white paper back then, our first paper on Opportunity Zones in, in May, over a year ago. And um, as soon as we sent it out, the phone started ringing and the emails started coming in. So it, it really took off right after that. Yeah, I think those early days, a lot of people were really starved for information. There was a dearth of information out there. So you helped fill that void, I'm sure. You told us a little bit about Duval and Stackenfeld already, but can you, can you tell us a little bit more about it? How big is the firm and what are its strengths and who are some of your clients? Or you don't need to give me specific names, but but what what types of clients do you serve? Yeah, sure. Um, so Duval and Stockenfeld, we are uh, we are coming up on our 22nd anniversary in just a couple months. Uh, we're we're based here in New York City. This is our only office. We have about 50 attorneys. Um, so by by New York City standards, we we might be on the small side. And the, the firm is really all about real estate, every flavor of real estate. Our tagline is the, the pure play in real estate. So we do every flavor of real estate deals from you know, buying and selling the dirt 
to, to more complicated corporate structures, everything from a simple, quote-unquote, simple joint venture, which, of course, is never as simple as it seems, to more complicated and complex structures, such as um, in-depth platform investments and, obviously, these qualified opportunity funds have been a big deal for us. We also do a lot on the finance side in terms of, you know, mortgages, MES debt, preferred equity. We do leasing. We do a special – we have New York City specialty practice groups here for, like, you know, New York City real property tax and zoning issues. So uh, if, 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 if real estate is involved, then, then there's a good chance that we do it. We have a lot of institutional clients, a lot of real estate funds, proper big real estate commingled funds. We don't do a typically we don't do a lot of their up to your fund work, but we do a lot of the deal work. So all the investments that these big institutional real estate funds invest into, we negotiate those those investments for them. We have a lot of uh, a lot of big institutional lenders. Uh, we also represent a ton of developers. So we, we get to sort of see the transactions from both sides of the table, which I think is one reason why our clients really – our clients are very loyal. Um, and I think they appreciate the fact that we can bring a lot of market intelligence to, to the table in terms of advising them, not only on, on, on the legal issues, but also on what's happening in the market and what they should really need to be looking out for. Excellent. Excellent. And can you characterize your general approach to working with your clients Maybe you have a new client who wants to set up a qualified opportunity fund or maybe wants something really super complicated in terms of how it's structured. What's, what's your general approach? What's, what's, what's the approach you take with someone like that? Well, I think the, the first thing that needs to happen is education, right? Um, I think that even now still, you know, more than 18 months into, into living in the land of odd, shall we say, <laughs> there's still a ton of misinformation out there. There's a lot of misunderstanding. I view my most important job in the first instance as really um, to educate my clients and let them know, look, this is how the program works. These are the tax benefits. This is what the structure will, will look like. And then most importantly, it's, it's really important for them to understand what we know, what we don't know, um, and, and, and where, where, where the fuzzy areas are. Uh, you know, tax law generally, there's shades of gray. It's very rare to get a, an answer that's 100% yes or 100% no. You're often sort of trying to interpret things and borrowing from different areas of the tax law, and there's a lot of interpretive issues there, which is what I like. I like the analytic process of it. But I think that it's important, especially in an area like opportunity zones, where we don't actually have a lot of guidance on point. You know, for, for, for the first 10 months, all we had was those two sections in the Internal Revenue Code, which just uh, generated a lot more questions than they answered. Uh, and now we have two sets of regulations, which are certainly helpful. You know, they're in proposed form. But again, a lot of the issues that come up in trying to structure a qualified opportunity fund, they they beg more questions. And then, then well, where are you going to find the answers? And so it's a question of what other areas of tax law can you look to? And is it reasonable or, or not in, in certain instances to rely on those other areas in the tax law? And so I think it's important for, for anybody looking at this space and trying to understand it is that... On the on the legal side, on the interpretive side, the the tax lawyers, the the accountants, CPAs, we are all um, doing our best to interpret a very skeletal outline of this legislation uh, and fill in the holes. And so, it's important for people to understand that some things are clear, <laughs> but more often than not, there's always going to be lingering questions about, well, is that what they meant, or is that the right way to do it, or what does that mean? So it's a constant process of education and explaining. But again, more the most important thing 
in all of that, given the uncertainties, is I really try and give my clients a very frank view of, 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 of what's happening. It's like, well, look, I think that you're going to be okay on this because of X, Y, Z, or that, frankly, is fairly risky. Um, and if you want to do it, I can explain the risks to you, but just understand that you may be a little bit sort of on the other side of the line from where, from where I would typically advise you to go. Um, but look, everybody's an adult. Everybody's making the commercial decisions they need to make, um, and as long as I can be frank and upfront with them about you know where they are in terms of comfort on the various points, I think they appreciate that. Yeah, you mentioned a very skeletal frame or skeletal outline of of the statute. I can only imagine how difficult it must have been to interpret that statute in the first few months before we had any sort of regulatory guidance. I, I'm I'm sure you must have been breathing a sigh of relief when when we finally got the first and second tranche and now you've got a little bit of meat on that skeleton to work with. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would sit in, I'd be in so many meetings trying to explain the legislation to people before the regulations came out. And there was a lot of shoulder shrugging and well, maybe, and who knows. Uh, And it's very difficult to uh, obviously to be an effective advisor in a situation like that, because again, I can tell I'm comfortable telling my clients where the uncertainties are, but when there's so much uncertainty, you know, who's going to be comfortable going ahead with that? And I think that's the reason why there was a real delay in terms of people actually doing these deals, right? Everybody wanted to talk about opportunity zones. Everybody wanted to understand them, but nobody was willing to pull the trigger on it. And now, finally, after the second round of regs, we're starting to see some movement there. And I I do think there's certainly still some outstanding questions and things that need to be clarified and things hope they change. But I think we really, at this point, have the bulk of the guidance that we're going to get in terms of being able to structure these deals and put them together. So once people hear that, at that point, it becomes a commercial decision, right? Are you comfortable, given what we know and given the guidance, to, to go ahead with it? Understanding that, you know, there's going to be a few leaps of faith in there because not everything is crystal clear and laid out for you. But if it's a good deal and the deal makes sense, then that's really the reason to go forward. The tax benefits are great, right? But um, if, if the deal doesn't work, if you don't make any money on the deal, then the tax benefits aren't really worth anything. So at the end of the day, what we've told our clients is, look, do the deal if it's a good deal. Um, and, you know, obviously we're going to do our best to structure it in a way that, that accomplishes that result, that you, the Qualified Opportunity Fund is set up the right way and you meet all the requirements. But at the end of the day, don't do this just for the tax benefits, right? Do it because it's a good deal. That's right. And that issue comes up on almost every episode of this podcast. You got to make sure the yeah. you got to make sure the deal makes sense. You can't just uh, get into it for the for the tax benefit. The underlying investment has to make sense as well. Jessica, can you tell right. us a little bit about your personal background? Earlier, you mentioned the phrase "land of Oz," and if I understand correctly, you are referred to at least internally at Duvon Stackenfeld as the Wizard of Oz. You're really their Opportunity Zone specialist. But how did you get to that point? How did you get to where you are today? Um, yeah, I, I certainly did not have dreams growing up of, of becoming a tax lawyer. <laughs> so I guess it's funny. It's funny where life takes you. But um, I, uh, I went to Johns Hopkins for undergrad, and as I was rounding out my senior year there, I realized that I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I, uh, I actually joined the Peace Corps, uh, and I went and I lived in West Africa for two years. Um, and when I came back from West Africa, I still realized that I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But when I was uh, when I was in the Peace Corps, I um, I, I became interested in international law and international human rights in particular. Um, and so I said, well, maybe I'll, I'll go back to school and I'll study international law. So. 
I went to law school having dreams of being an international human rights lawyer, <laughs> and then I found out that that doesn't really exist. <laughs> um, so now, of course, I'm, I'm in law school and I'm, I'm racking up law school debt, so I figured I would uh, kind of do the path of least resistance and go and get one of, one of those law firm jobs, because that's what people did. Um, and the summer in between my first and second year of law school, I did an overseas program. Uh, I was at law school in Duke down in North Carolina, and I did an overseas program in uh, in Switzerland, and I needed one more kind of BS summer class to, to, to fill things up, and I, I chose international tax law, because it sounded kind of interesting, and I figured it was only a couple weeks. How bad could it possibly go? And I was hooked. I, w- I was fascinated by the way that um, different tax systems worked and how they interacted with each other. So when I came back and I did all of my interviews to, to get a summer associate job for the next summer, I asked to speak with uh, all the tax groups for all the law firms that I interviewed with. Um, and it, from then on, I, it was it was a pretty clear path. Uh, once I actually started practicing uh, tax law in the next summer, I was super confused. I had no idea what anything was, but it was interesting. Um, and but then I tried out corporate law for a few weeks and I, I switched back to tax <laughs> because I, I, I said, well, I'm, whatever it is, I'm not going to be a corporate lawyer. That's not interesting at all. <laughs> so uh, it was it was a pretty clear, clear path from then on. Um, and I found that I really, as I said before, I really like the analytical process um, of looking at the language in the code and then looking at the regulations and then looking at the guidance. And I find that, you know, there's, as I said before, there's a, there's a lot, there's some fuzziness there. Um, and so you, you look at the facts that a client presents you with and says, okay, well, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. This is my commercial goal. And I can look at the law and I can say, well, you know, under those facts, this is where you're going to end up. Um, if you don't want to end up there, you know, are there any facts you can change, right? Can you change the structure? Can you change the way the payments work? Can you change debt to equity or equity to debt? And, you know, will all that work with your commercial objectives? Um, and it, it's a way to, to take the client's ultimate objective and sort of put them through the tax law maze, right? And say, okay, if you want to get there, this is this, this is how we can get there. Um, and so it, it's a fascinating process. Um, and the opportunity zone rules were just uh, super super interesting, you know. Regardless, and then I found there was a nice symmetry too, given the fact that um, the opportunity zones are really all about investing in these these low income areas in the country, which kind of takes me back to the fact that I started all of this trying to kind of help people uh, overseas in the Peace Corps. So um, I don't know if it's come quite full circle, but uh, I managed to, to kind of overlay my, my professional skills with, with trying to, to do the right thing. So we'll see if that works out. Yeah, overlaying your professional skills with uh with your original passion i think that's i think that's great i think you have come close to full circle as you mentioned and yeah you caught the tax law bug and and there's no cure for it it seems <laughs> so you're just you're in tax yeah. law now i want to shift our conversation to to opportunity zones now specifically some technical issues that a lot of people get hung up on how does someone form a qualified opportunity fund i know all you really have to do is file form 8996 with the IRS, right? Or or is it a little bit more complicated than that? Well, um, in terms of the actual legal formation of the entity and the self-certification process, you're absolutely right. You, you form an entity. Um, a qualified opportunity fund needs to be either a corporation or a partnership for tax purposes. But the regs did clarify that you can use a limited liability company. Um, 
keep in mind, though, that uh, an LLC, a limited liability company that is wholly owned, only has one owner, is a disregarded entity for tax purposes and is ignored. So a QOF cannot be a wholly owned LLC that is a disregarded entity. You, you need another, um, either you need to make an election for it to be a corporation, um, which is not always the most tax efficient thing to do unless that corporation is going to be a REIT. Um, but if you're going to have a VIA partnership, you do need another member in there. It can be kind of a de minimis 1% partner or something. Um, <clears throat> so you form your entity, you file Form 8996, um, and there there are some bells and whistles that you need to put into the operating agreement for the entity um, to comply comply with the regs and the instructions on the form, uh, mainly in the in the purpose section of the document, which 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 isn't too too taxing. Um, then there's just the question of complying with the 90% test and the structure and is there a QZB and, and, and all the rest of it. So legally, the legal formation isn't so tricky, but then it's, of course, making sure that the structure works overall in the context of the rule. Right. Now, that's an interesting point you bring up regarding the single-member LLC. That's that's a no-go, I suppose. That kind of uh, would defeat the whole purpose because it's just a disregard entity and everything would pass through and there there would really be no... What what is exactly the logistical problem there? There'd be no, you wouldn't be able to ap- apply the gain properly. Well, it's more just the fact that um, you know, they all of the all of the tax benefits that investors are are eligible for under the Opportunity Zone program. All of those tax benefits are really affected um, as between the investor and the qualified opportunity fund. You know, they do that with uh, some, some basis adjustments and, and everything else. But if you have a single-member mar- single LLC that's a disregarded entity for, for tax purposes, then the, the rules just don't apply. Um, you know, you can't have basis in something that doesn't exist. So, uh, so, so you really need to make sure you have a regarded entity there for tax purposes. Gotcha. I'm going to talk about structuring a qualified opportunity fund, you know, IRS forms aside, what are you legally supposed to do? Or what are your options for legally setting up one of these funds and, and forming these fund agreements? I know you've got a different one tier structure or a two tier structure. And, you know, it can, depends on who the investors are and whether you're forming a single asset fund or a multi-asset fund. Can you go into all of the various nuances of, of the different ways to set up a qualified opportunity fund? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. You know, wh- one of the, one of the few things that we did know straight away from, from, from the statute was the, the, the universe of possible structures, um, because they, they really laid out in, in 1400 uh, of the code, what, what your alternatives were there. Uh, and you're absolutely right. There's basically a single tier structure and there's a two tier structure. Under the single-tier structure, the investors invest into a qualified opportunity fund, and the qualified opportunity fund owns uh, qualified opportunity zone property. And that structure we don't like very much because it's very inflexible. Um, You know, at the QOF level, you had a 90% asset test that needs to be met twice a year, and we got a little bit of relief in, in the April regs this year in terms of timing and exactly, you know, when you have to apply that 90% asset test that's newly contributed um, cash from the investors. But otherwise, it, you don't really have any, any ability to hold other cash there. You don't really have any flexibility. So that single-tier structure, uh, in, in my mind, is not very helpful. Um, 
The other structure which we've been advising all of our clients to use and which I've sort of seen generally in the market is what is this so-called two-tier structure. And under that two-tier structure, you have investors in the QOF and you have the QOF um, owning that qualified opportunity zone business. Um, and with the QOZB, you, you have the same issue there about disregarded entities. Um, the QOZB needs to be either a corporation or a partnership as well. So you, you, you have not accomplished the two-tier structure if you have your QOF owning a single-member LLC. Uh, that doesn't work. You, that, if you really need to have a corporation or a partnership as the QOZB. Um, but the reason why we like the QOZB in the structure um, even before we found out that they were going to define substantial for purposes of that tangible property test at the QOZB level at 70%, um, we, we knew that you, you had a lot more choices down there, right? We knew there was a 70% tangible property requirement. We didn't yet know what it was. But even if, even if they had defined it as high as 90% for that purpose, that meant that you, you, know, you had – you had a kind of a, a, a bucket at each level that, that you could sort of put other assets in or other cash in if you needed to. So we automatically knew there was going to be more flexibility by having two, two tiers in your structure. Um, the big thing that's helpful for, for real estate deals in particular, but even for the operating business rules, um, <clears throat> is this ability to have a reasonable amount of working capital at the QODB level. Uh, you don't have that at the QOF level. You only have it at the QOZB level. Um, and so, you know, you have the, even once you have your project up and running and built, you know, you can have a reasonable amount of working capital. They haven't defined it, so it's whatever is reasonable for the business. Um, and then in your initial ramp-up phase, whenever you're building whatever you're building or improving whatever you're improving, um, you know, you, they, they put out this 31-month um, safe harbor for working capital. And I think that's, that's helpful, too. And, they, again, they've given us some more flexibility there in terms of uh, you know, how that works and what do you do if money comes in over time and what do you do if you're waiting on the government for an approval. Um, so having all of that flexibility at the QOZB level is really pushing everybody towards using this two-tier structure. Um, it's not really clear to me why, why, why they didn't and why they haven't harmonized the rules at each level, but maybe Treasury felt that that, that wasn't within their regulatory authority given some of the language in the code. Um, but for whatever reason, the, the, the more complicated structure with these two tiers ends up getting you a better result. Um, the, the other thing to think about in structuring these deals um, is the exit, right? Because you, you, have to, you have to think about the end <laughs> even before you get started. Um, and this isn't necessarily something that, that, that's um, a, a result of a restriction in the code and sort of saying you have to do it this way, but it's sort of an indirect result of something in the code. Um, and the issue here is that the, the big 10-year tax benefit, I mean, now that's, the brass ring, right? That's what everybody's going to go for. Um, the language in the code says that for investors to get the 10-year tax benefit, they need to sell, after 10 years, they need to sell their equity in the QOF. Um, and that gave a lot of people in the real estate industry significant pause <laughs> because, you know, real estate investors like to buy and sell the dirt. 
right? You don't want to buy an entity, and entity has liabilities, and God knows what's been going on in that entity, so you like to buy the dirt. Um, you know, entity deals do happen, uh, but they're they're a lot more painful, <laughs> I would say. Uh, there's a lot more negotiation. There's reps and warranties and indemnities and everything else. So when the real estate industry said, wait a minute, that means after 10 years I have to sell my QOF interest, it, it gave people a little bit of pause. Um, and a lot of people wrote letters to Treasury and said, you know, you're, you're really inhibiting the market here uh, with this. Um, but more fundamentally, the, the byproduct, aside from the fact that doing the deal at the end is kind of a pain, um, if you really do have to sell your QOF equity at the end of at the end of the deal to exit, then that means that if a buyer is buying your QOF, they are buying the QOF and they are buying everything inside the QOF. So if you have a single property in your QOF and the buyer wants to buy the single property, then okay, maybe the deal may be a little bit of a pain. You may take a slight pricing haircut. Um, by having to do an entity sale, but at least you could do it. Your buyer could buy your single asset QOF to get the single property. Um, but if you have a whole portfolio of properties in the QOF, um, then all of a sudden that means that after 10 years, you're looking for a buyer to buy the whole portfolio of properties, um, which you know potentially limits your universe of buyers depending on how, how big the portfolio is. So a lot of people, especially... Um, the investment banks of the world were not very happy with that because, you know, they, they, they don't, they're trying to get their high net worth investors to, they want to give them a product, right? They want to give them diversification. You know, they don't necessarily want to tell them, oh, buy a, an interest in a QF that owns this one single property that has a lot of development risk to it. So, um, again, Treasury got a lot of comments on that. Um, and they came back in the April regs with uh, what, is a little bit helpful, but not not entirely helpful. I don't know if they, I don't know if this is what they intended to do or not. But what they said in the April regs is that okay, you know, we hear you. Um, so we'll give you a little bit of flexibility. Um, after ten years, you can, you have a choice. Either the investors can sell their equity in the QOF, or the QOF can sell its property. So at first glance, you know, great, they're, they're letting you do property sales. But then if you look at the language, it really was limited to the QOF selling the property. But, you know, Jimmy, I just told you nobody's doing these single-tier structures. Everybody's doing the two-tier structure. And in the two-tier structure, the property is not held by the QOF. The property is held by the QOZB. So Treasury said, well, the QOF can sell its property. Did they, you know, did they forget <laughs> to say that, oh, and, and we also meant that the QOZB can sell its property, or did they leave it out on purpose? Um, that, that's a question I don't know the answer to. But um, if they really wanted to permit property sales, if they really wanted to give you that level of flexibility, then, um, you know, they really should have said that the QOZB can sell its property, too. So people are now kind of struggling to figure that out and, you know, what did they mean? What didn't they mean? How should this change the structure? What can you do? What can't you do? Um, we're still advising our clients to set these things up in a way to facilitate um, entity, QOF entity sales uh, if you have to. Um, because in addition to the fact that the rules are a little bit unclear, this particular section of the proposed regulations is the only one that you cannot rely on right now. Um, so we're still in a little bit of limbo. In my mind, this is the biggest thing that still needs to be cleaned up and clarified. Um, there's a little bit more flexibility than there was at the beginning, but um, it remains to be seen exactly how all that's going to play out. I gotcha. So it's it would just be easier if all of these funds were just single asset funds. But the only problem with that is then the funds themselves lack any 
um, diversification. So what's what's your solution there in in the meantime? Would you are you recommending that your clients set up multiple funds, maybe one fund for each different property, or or, or what exactly are you are you advising them to do? So there's a, there's a couple different different things that you can do. The the first thing, um, which which I know some people right out of the gate were doing to, to sort of deal with this issue, um, is you can set up your qualified opportunity fund to be a REIT, a real estate investment trust. Um, and the, the using a real estate investment trust because a REIT is actually a, um, a corporation for U.S. tax purposes that's made the REIT election. There are some technical rules in the code, again outside the QOF context, that say that if a corporation um, sells all of its assets pursuant to a plan of liquidation uh, within uh, two years and then liquidates. The shareholders in that read are actually treated as if they sold their equity in, in the corporation. So you have a technical basis there to actually have a, a true commingled fund, do property sales at the end, and have your, your shareholders get, get the right QF tax treatment. So people were, were, were using REITs uh, and going out of the gate and saying, maybe, maybe we'll make a REIT election. Um, and the, the proposed regs um, in April also gave some additional helpful clarity for REITs. You're no longer stuck with this two-year plan of liquidation. You can actually um, sell properties and, and REIT shareholders can, can get the, the benefit that way. The issue in my mind with doing a REIT um, <clears throat> is that then you're stuck with both the QOF rules and the REIT rules. <laughs> um, and you're taking two very complicated tax structures uh, and layering them on top of each other. Uh, and the, the, there's going to be some friction there. Uh, the REIT rules don't always mesh in every instance very well with the QOF rules. Uh, not to say it can't be done. People are doing it, and it can be done. But there are certain types of assets that you're just not going to be able to do because it's a REIT um, or you know, if it's something that requires the use of a, a taxable REIT subsidiary in a REIT structure, that doesn't really work so well with the QOF rules. So the REIT is an option, um, but it's going to be very fact-specific. Um, the other thing that our clients are doing, and I know others in the market are doing as well, is kind of doing a, a what I'll call a synthetic fund. Um, so you go out to investors and you say, okay, why don't you know subscribe to my my, my qualified opportunity fund? I'm raising you know seven billion dollars or whatever it is. Um, but then actually the legal form of that is not one single QOF, right? The legal form of that is going to be multiple QOFs. Um, and so, when, when investors sign up and sign their subscription agreement, you know you're not taking their money and putting putting them, admitting them to a single QOF. You're taking their money and you're putting them into a series of QOFs, um, and you have a sort of a series of these single asset QOFs, which um, permits you at the end to do the entity sale if you need to, because you know each QOF would only own a single property. Um, it's a little bit of a, a compliance. Uh, or rather a reporting issue, I would say, because then, you know, your investors are getting multiple K-1s at the end of the year, which they may not like. Um, and um, the other thing that investors don't necessarily love about that is that if you think about a traditional commingled fund that's a single partnership, a lot of times the promote or, the you know, the carry that's being paid to the manager, the GP, that's usually done on like a blended basis. So you're looking at all the deals um, and you're saying, okay, what, what's the overall return from all these deals? And if you, the hurdles are high, you know, if you, if you get enough cash back, then that's when you have to start paying a promote to the GP or the manager. Um, 
And the investors like that because it gives them some protection, right? If you've got one deal that's doing great, but all the other deals are, are you know, doing poorly, you're you're not you don't have to necessarily pay to promote because you, overall you're not making that much money. Um, but if you have these single asset deals and the promote is calculated on a deal by deal basis, then if one deal is doing great, you're going to end up paying a promote on that one deal, even if all the other deals aren't. Because um, there's some tax issues about crossing the promotes that, um, that that get a little bit tricky if you really want to maintain the, the the single entity nature of each of the QOFs. So, you know, again, each of these structures um, can work, right? Uh, but none of them are squeaky clean. There's always like an ancillary issue about that one, or something to think about with the other one. So, um, people are, are are trying to get creative and figure out what's the right structure. And it's, it's going to be very fact-dependent, depending on the investors, depending on the property, your properties, depending on the sponsor. Um, so each one of these ends up always being a little bit different. Yeah, that's that's really tricky. It's, there's drawbacks to each one of these different types of structures. I guess there's no perfect universal solution yet. and uh, Maybe there will never be, probably. Um, when When would you use different structures? Like, when would you advise a client to use a REIT or in which situation would you use a partnership or an LLC or in which situation would you want to structure it as a corporation? So the, um, the, the, the main time when I think you would want to use the REIT is if you, if, if we don't get any further flexibility on this exit issue from treasury, um, then using a REIT is a, is, probably a, a good idea if you really want that true commingled fund model um, because that's the that's the one model right now that really allows you to do property level sales um, and have investors still get the 10-year tax benefit um, again you have to make sure that the, the underlying property is gonna is gonna work within the rate rules but, but right now the read is really your best option for doing that um, the, the partnership structures uh, are helpful because then you don't have to deal with the REIT rules. <laughs> um, but again, you have this issue about, you know, if, if it's just a single asset, then yes, do a partnership. I think that that's the, the, the better way to go. Um, if you are doing multiple multiple deals and you want to give investors that exposure, and, you know, maybe, you know, if it's not if, it, if it's not 20 deals, that might be a bunch. But, you know, if it's kind of, you know, three, four, five, maybe six, um, Maybe that synthetic fund model will, will work um, if you can kind of get your investors on board with the, the fact that the promotes aren't going to be cost. Um, I don't, you know, people really aren't going to be using regular old C corporations here just because of the tax inefficiency. Um, <clears throat> I know people have spoken about using S corps because uh, you can use an S corporation also in the QOF context. So um, depending on, you know, how many investors you have and, 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 and what the ultimate goals are, an S-Corp may also be uh, a vehicle that you can think about using. Um, but for the most part, by and large, we're seeing, we're seeing partnerships. Gotcha. I'm going to get to a couple more of these technical questions here. So let's say that I'm going to go the traditional route. You and I have talked for a while, and I'm setting up a QOF, and we've decided we're going to do the traditional two-tier qualified opportunity fund as an LLC partnership, what types of agreements do I need? What, what, what type of paperwork do I actually need to, to structure those? Um, so the first thing that you're going to need, no matter what, is you're going to need your QOF operating agreement, right? You're need the operating agreement that uh, sort of governs the relationship between all the investors in the QOF and, you know, Jimmy, let's assume that you're the, you're the sponsor, so you're, you're raising all the money. Uh, they're looking to you to, to operate the QOF as a good QOF. 
So you're going to need that operating agreement, um, and uh, that'll set out the economics and, you know, the governance rights or lack of governance rights more often than not. Um, and then if you have this two-tier structure, you're going to need the operating agreement for your QODB. Um, and, again, whoever's managing or, or, or um, the, the general partner of that QODB is going to have to have certain uh, certain provisions in there, promising or not promising, how much they're going to comply with the rules. Um, again, again, there's going to be economics at that level as well. Um, the the other potential big document or documents that, that you'll need, depending on uh, who your investors are and the size of your fundraise and everything else, um, uh, is going to be potentially you're going to want to have a, a PPM, private placement memorandum, uh, and a full-blown subscription agreement. Um, and I'm not a security lawyer, but, <laughs> uh, you know, it, there, there are laws in place that sort of govern, um, you know, disclosures that you need to make and registering or not registering with the SEC and all the rest of it. Um, but the, the private placement memorandum is really a document that protects the, the sponsor. Um, and because what you do in the private placement memorandum um, is you describe the project. You say, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. This is my timeline for getting it done. Um, you describe the, the team, right, who's going to be doing this and how much experience do we have. Um, then you have risk factors. Um, and the risk factors can be, uh, it's, it's like everything under the sun, right? I mean, these are all the things that could go wrong. It's just a litany of, like, doomsday scenarios. Um, but you put that in there because this way, you know, you've given that to investors. And uh, if something does go wrong, it's, it's a protective document for the sponsor, because you, if something does go wrong, an investor should around and say, "Wait, but you, but this was supposed to be a good QF deal, and uh, or this was supposed to be, you know, some brand new development that you were gonna that you were gonna build, and um, you know, I wasn't expecting this." And then you can point to the PPM and say, "No, I told you there were all these risks. I told you there was environmental risk. I told you there was construction risk." I told you there was tax risk. I told you nothing was certain about the QR rules. You know, you have this whole set of, um, uh, of, of you know, potential outcomes listed in there, and investors need to sign on and say that they received it and say that they read it. Uh, I don't know if they actually do read it or not. <laughs> um, you also have disclosures in there, like there's a full-blown tax disclosure explaining how the, how the tax rules work. Um, and... Given the fact that the QOF regime is so new and there's still so much misinformation out there, um, we most of our clients, even for deals that otherwise we probably wouldn't even bother doing a PPM, uh, they're doing PPMs, right? Um, unless their their investors are really friends and family or super sophisticated investors that have all invested with them before, we're advising our clients to do a PPM just for their own protection, and most of them are going ahead and, and, and taking us up on that. Um, Remains to be seen, you know, as the program develops, whether or not that will change. Um, but for right now, we're, we're advising people to do PPMs um, as well as full-blown subscription documents, which sort of, again, there's a lot of reps in there, and investors have to sign, up, sign on and say they're making all these reps about how they understand the deal and, and, and everything else. So um, there's more legal documentation around these QOF deals, at least now, um, than, than there might be in a non-QOF deal. Um, but I think it's just because everybody is still trying to, to, to figure out exactly what's the best way to, to go ahead and do this. I mean, people really want to do the deals, um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of money moving back and forth, and you just want to make sure that you're protected on the legal side. Good. Now, that's wise. You want to make sure you're crossing all your T's, dotting all your I's. If I'm setting up a QOF, what 
and, and I'm just doing a traditional QOF like we discussed, just a two-tier um, LLC partnership. That's probably the most traditional. What can I expect to pay in legal costs to make sure that I get everything set up the right way? We've had we've had deals all over the map in terms of uh, legal costs. You know, the um, most you know most law firms, including ours, you know, we work on an hourly basis. So uh, you know, okay, you sort of get paid for the time that we spend. Um, but again, if, if it's a super super simple, to the extent that there's a thing, right? If it's a super simple deal and it's all internal, like let's say you know, give me like you and a couple of your friends want to pull your money together and put it into QOF, and you know, oh yeah, every you know everything is going to be decided. Um, you know, jointly and there's no negotiation and it's super straightforward, you know, that that's going to be a, a much different uh, legal bill <laughs> at the end of the day than if you have somebody raising $200 million from true third parties um, and, you know, maybe maybe if, or if they're partnering up or sort of utilizing one of the big investment banks to source all the investors, you've got negotiations and first you've got term sheets and negotiations and back and forth and all these people weighing in and this and that. And, you know, those, those bills can get, uh, can, can get up there. <laughs> so it, 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 those deals are not for the faint of heart, but, you know, for the most part, it's all sophisticated people who are doing that anyway. I'm sure. I'm sure there's a there's a pretty wide range. Can you, can you give me a sense of, of what the range is on the low end and, and on the really high end for a super fancy, super complicated QOF? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I would say that we've, we've done um, a couple of what I'll call these like internal QOFs, right? You know, um, between maybe, you know, affiliated entities or, or, or friends and family and things like that. And what we've done just for the, the QOF document itself, um, not thinking about the JV or anything else or the purchase and sale agreement for the property or anything, we've done uh, some super simple QOFs for, I'm going to call it, you know, like starting around like 20000 um, kind of, you know, once you, once you do that or, and they, and they go up from there, <laughs> you know, we're doing one deal that, um, is been going on for, for, for months at this point, um, because we had sort of an existing, existing structure and property owner, um, and they're, they're sort of selling the property over and then they're coming in for a piece and we've got seller financing. And so you've got, you know, all these different moving pieces and different documents and loan agreements and everything else. And, um, that, that bill's a little bit higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't take much to start getting up into the six figures at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I guess so. We 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 are a New York City law firm, so I guess we we will we will we will wear that badge. <laughs> of course. Well, Jessica, thank you for sharing all these insights with me today. You really are the Wizard of Oz. I'm, I am uh, I can approve that nickname for you now. This is this has been great. Where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Duval and Stackenfeld? Yeah, sure. Um, so we we've got a website. It is, uh, and I'm sure Jimmy, you can sort of post this with the show notes. But I will. It's, it's, uh, dslp.com um, and we've got a whole page about opportunity zones with links to all of our um, we call them roadmaps like white papers um, and sort of articles that uh, either I've been quoted in or our managing partner Terry Adler has been quoted in um, or Bruce Stockenfeld our chairman so we've uh, you know we've been making a big splash both uh, on the tax side and on the real estate side really to uh, to, to get into the space and um, we're, we're having a lot of fun with it so. yeah no it looks like you are Duval and Stockenfeld definitely does have a wealth of information on their Opportunity Zone Resource Center. So I will link to that uh, in the show notes page for today's episode. So for all the listeners out there, I'll have links to the resources that Jessica and I discussed on today's show at the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Jessica, again, 
Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.